We'll be reading from Joshua 24, starting at verse 14. It reads, Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods of your forefathers that they worship beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if in serving the Lord it seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Ammonites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord." Then the people answered, Far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. It was the Lord our God himself who brought us and our fathers up out of Egypt and and from that land of slavery and performed those great signs before our eyes. He protected us on our entire journey and among all the nations through which we traveled. And the Lord drove out before us all the nations, including the Amorites who lived in the land. We too will serve the Lord because he is our God. Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you after he has been good to you. But the people said to one another, no, we will serve the Lord. And Joshua said, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen to serve the Lord. Yes, we are witnesses, they replied. Now then, said Joshua, throw away the foreign gods that are among you and yield your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, we will serve the Lord our God and obey him. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now take a moment and turn to the New Testament, to Ephesians chapter 4. Paul's letter to the Ephesians chapter 4, page 815 in the Pew Bible, as we hear from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. Paul writes, It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ, From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. And again, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you for those moments of nostalgia. When I left here in 1984 to go down to Mission Lutheran and Laguna Niguel, I took the Michael Mass with me. It didn't last six months. (laughs) Maybe if I had a bluegrass band to do it, it would have been a different outcome. First of all, let me say thank you for inviting Susie and myself back to to be included in your celebration of 50 years of faithful 
ministry to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. When I first arrived here in June of 1979, I was a wet-nosed seminarian who had no idea what a pastor was. Your patience and understanding with me as I struggled to find my pastoral legs, your willingness to allow me to be myself and not some caricature of a Lutheran pastor that you had when you were growing up, along with the profound mentorship and friendship that Pastor Paul Johnson had on my life. I say thank you because you provided me the foundation that I needed so that God could build me into the pastor that he wanted me to be. And of course, it was not just upon me, upon whom you have had great significance over those years. I do not know of any other Lutheran church in the Pacific Ascended, then or even now, who has produced as many pastors as you have. I heard the number this morning, I was totally surprised, 15. When I was here, there was four different people in seminary at one time or another, and two more in the wings. And more that definitely followed after that. Your impact upon the lives of your people, the city of Huntington Beach, and upon the church of Christ at large is immeasurable. And only God can fully know at this time what that impact is. But I promise you there is a day that is coming when God's going to reveal all of that to you. And what a day that will be. But for those of us who have had the chance to have a journey as long as Grace Lutheran's 50 years or more, we've come to understand a number of things about long journeys, and one of them is simply this. There are seasons filled with mountaintops, but also desolate valleys. Seasons of great encouragement and promise, as well as seasons of discouragement and doubt. But we must never fail to believe, as the Bible makes perfectly clear over and over again, that no matter where we are in that cycle, whether it's the mountaintop or the valley, God is always there to grow his people into Christ and to strengthen his church for his service. And that's what I'd like to talk with you about today. But before we do that, I'd like to begin with a word of prayer. Will you please pray with me? Lord, gracious Father, we praise you for your faithfulness in all the various seasons of Grace Lutheran's life and ministry. Whether it has been on the mountaintop where you've inspired, encouraged, and empowered them to do your work and will, or in the valleys, the boot camp of life, or you formed and shaped your people into your image. They have remained faithful to you and to the mission that you have entrusted to them. May they feel this day and every day your favor and your blessing. 
Amen. Now, I'm one of those people, like many in the Old Testament, that when God comes knocking on the door and says, I want you, I go, me? Like Moses, who said, I can't speak, literally, I was one of those, because English was my worst subject and creative writing was my greatest stressor. And I'm sure some of you may remember some of my bad grammar. And I'm going to do it again today in honor of that (laughs) legacy. Because what I'm going to do, I'm going to be mixing metaphors right and left. And so I give somebody a challenge. I got $5 here in my wallet. And if you can count all the metaphors that I use in my sermon and name them to me, the first person to do that is going to get that $5 bill. Now, for some of you out there, it may be the only way I keep your attention. (laughs) But I want to get back to, I guess, what you would call my original metaphor, that we're on a journey. But what's interesting about that word journey, the Apostle Paul never uses that as a metaphor that depicts the Christian life. In fact, he uses the word journey twice in all his writings, and it basically was literally referring to what it was, a journey or traveling through Asia and Eastern Europe. However, there is another metaphor that Paul loved to use when he likens our journey to Christ, and that is the race. Not any race, mind you. What he had in mind was that great Greek marathon, a race that is not characterized by speed or winning, but by endurance and perseverance. For those of us who have watched the Boston or L.A. Marathon on TV are amazed that there's thousands upon thousands of people willing to endure 26 miles of running, grueling money. As you can look at this body, you can see I'm not one of those. (laughs) But what's even more amazing is that 99.9% of those people know they have no snowball chance, and you know where, of winning that race. So why do they do it? Well, having talked to a few marathoners over the years, you know, I like to live vicariously through other people, you know, especially to do the things I don't like to do. They share it. Well, first, it's the novelty of being part of this great major marathon. I understand that. But for most, the important part is to be able to say to one and all, I finished the race. And I think we all can agree that anyone who is willing to endure 26 grueling miles is a feat in and of itself, no matter how long it takes. Could there be a more perfect picture of what it means to be a Christian than to liken our life to that of a marathon race, not where the emphasis is upon becoming first or being swiftest, but simply to persevere and endure to the end? The Apostle Paul thought so, as he often used the race metaphor to depict what our journey as a Christian is really like. It's long, it's hard, it's full of obstacles. But a prize, a great prize, await all who persevere to the end. Now in talking to some of my friends that ran marathons, 
I decided to say, what are some of the obstacles that you incur during this race? And one of them that they shared is one I've never heard before in my life. They said, well, a lot of times I hit the wall. The wall, as they explain it, is something that happens to a runner anywhere between 20 and 22 miles into the race. They call it the wall because at that time their body feels like it just wants to shut down. Their legs begin to feel like heavy logs. Their energy is sapped. They feel as though they're running on empty and every fiber and muscle in their body, body is just screaming, quit, quit, quit. And even though their mind's also telling them to, to quit and end this pain and drudgery, the experienced runner knows this one little secret. If he or she can endure, if they can push through the pain a little longer and keep going no matter how grueling it gets, something magical will happen. The body will find a new source of energy which will revitalize them so they can finish the race. And when I heard that, I go, wow. What a perfect example of what happens to all of us at one time or another in our lives. Whether it be in our marriage, whether it be in our career, our finances, our dreams, yes, even in our church, we all, at one time or another, are going to hit that mythical wall where we feel as though we can't go on any further, the future seems hopeless, and all we just want to do is sit down and quit. Now, the Bible uses different words to describe that reality. You know them. Trials, tribulations, testings. But there's one that I've come to learn over the years, and I sort of crafted it myself, borrowing words from the, uh, from the Bible. And that is their wilderness wanderings. You see, wildernesses in the Bible usually refer to those lonely desolate, empty places and times in our lives when the needs are great and the odds seem insurmountable. At first, like the wall, the wilderness appears to be our great enemy. We think it has one purpose and one purpose only, and that is to defeat us. But like the experienced marathoner who pushes through in faith to finish the race, those who choose to endure the wilderness wanderings in faith find that it's a different kind of place. Not a place to be feared, but a place to be embraced in prayer. Not a place that's devoid of God, but a place that can be filled with God and not an enemy seeking our destruction, but an ally for our renewal. If you've ever read from any of the great church fathers, 
you would discover from these spiritual marathoners that the wilderness is in reality a school of the spirit, where in the solitude of the heart and the loneliness of the place, God begins his work to transform his people and sharpen their vision to be his people. As I applied earlier, a wilderness is a given in almost any life journey of great length. Friends, there is no escaping it as long as we live. And as long as grace has been around for 50 years, I can safely assume there have been moments in the life of your congregation when you have hit that mythical wall and felt like you were in the wilderness. I know the feeling. Happened to me in 1994. Our congregation, Mission Lutheran Laguna Niguel, was in a building campaign. We were building a new sanctuary, our second unit, like this one is to Grace Lutheran. And in the midst of that program, my associate pastor and youth director take calls to new churches. And our music director resigns due to illness. Suddenly, all the people and the programming that made our church so vital and exciting went right out the door. And with them, they took all the enthusiasm and the excitement of the church. Grumbling began to set in. And for the first time in my 10 years of ministry, a number of people were growing dissatisfied. As I wrestled with God over this, wondering what should I do, should I even quit? He gave me three words. Prayer, patience, and persistence. As I began to focus on those words in the following weeks and months, God kept bringing to my mind those wilderness stories of his people who had to endure in the same way. Whether it was Moses seeking refuge in Midian, Jesus in the wilderness of temptation, Elijah in the wilderness cave, Israel 40 years in the wilderness, or Paul in the wilderness after his conversion. And yet in each and every one of these stories, the wilderness experience was neither fatal or final to their dreams, but oddly marked the beginning of a new dream and a new reality. I held on to that promise. And sure enough, within a year, we broke through the wall and we came out of the wilderness with a newfound wind and fresh vision that revitalized our church for ministry. And now I can say to you, in full confidence from scripture and personal experience, the same holds true for each of us that our wilderness experiences are much about preparing us for the future as they were for Moses, Jesus, and Paul.
what I'd like to do is share with you a couple of God's purposes and how he plans to work through the wilderness experience of our lives. The first, God used the wilderness experiences to sharpen our vision. Back in 1980, when Sue and I were here at Mission, sorry about that, Grace Lutheran, we experienced our third miscarriage. Up to that point in time, we were feeling pretty comfortable about life. We discovered the causes for the prior miscarriages, and with the new pregnancy, we thought the problem was now licked. So we began to make plans to add a room to our home and take a trip to Hawaii. Life was good. The future looked bright and we were operating on cruise control. Then one morning, five months into the pregnancy, Sue wakes up to discover her water had broken. We rushed her to Long Beach Memorial Hospital to discover that the situation was hopeless. The calm insanity that so characterized our world up to that time was suddenly shattered. We hit the wall. We were devastated and we felt totally empty inside. And as I sat in the hospital room with Sue, going through those natural moments of self-reflection, I suddenly realized that all those things that we were thought were so important and wonderful and necessary, the expansion to the house, the vacation, were no longer. The blurred vision of life that was brought on by our comfortable life suddenly took on a new and sharper focus. All that was really important to us now were the core essentials of life, and that is our relationship with God and with each other. What happened to Sue and I, I'm sure has happened to all of us at some time or another. When life starts to get too comfortable, our busyness diffuses our vision, our successes dull our senses, our tendency to want to coast through life, we ultimately begin to lose sight of what's valuable and important. And so I've come to learn that the way in which God often motivates his people to really begin to focus on what is valuable and important is to allow us at times to enter that wilderness where the distractions of life are stripped away and we begin to see clearly once again. This is what God did with Israel prior to their going to the promised land. When God took them out of Egypt, they were a fragmented people. They were divided in their loyalty to God as they brought their Egyptians' gods to them and, and prayed to them. And they continually desired, wanted to go back to where they had just fled. And so 40 years, God made them wander in the wilderness, testing them every day, day after day, until it became crystal clear as to who they were and what they were about as the people of God. 
And in Joshua 24, as Pastor Chris read, we heard these words from Joshua. Now fear the Lord and serve him with faithfulness. Throw away your God, your forefathers, worship and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And the people responded, no, we will too will serve the Lord and obey him. Just as the wilderness helps to sharpen Israel's vision and united them in their mission and calling, so it will serve to unite us into Christ through our shared vision and purpose. But the second thing the wilderness does is that it transforms God's people from being mere sheep into his useful shepherds. Do you not find it interesting, if not queer, that before Moses, Jesus, and Paul began their ministries, it all started with a wilderness experience? You know why? Because the wilderness has always been one of God's great tools for preparing men and women for ministry. By allowing us to go into a wilderness, God not only wants to remove all the external distractions from our lives so that we can refocus on what is important, but the wilderness also serves to remove all those artificial props and false idols that we become accustomed to in order to keep our faith alive and vibrant. There are many Christians today for whom their faith does not solely rest on God, but upon a person, a place, a program, a church, or a tradition. How many people do you know are no longer walking with Christ because their favorite pastor left? How many no longer are disciples of Christ because the church no longer offers their favorite program or style of worship? How many people you know after they left the, the church of their youth and relocated, never bothered to another church because their faith somehow is tied back in that old place. Now don't get me wrong. There are times when we all need to lean upon others for our encouragement, our support and inspiration. But never should our faith be solely dependent upon a person, a place, a church, or a tradition for its sufficiency. To do so is no different than what Israel was doing when it brought its false gods from Egypt to hold in their hand when they got anxious and hopeless. But it's not just people and programs and places that we as God's people need to be free from in order to grow to, to maturity in Christ. 
the big issue with Israel had to do with their past. The whole time that Moses is trying to lead them into the new future, they kept looking back over their shoulder to Egypt. What was back there, no matter how difficult and tragic it was, was much better because it was a known and certain reality. They had the comfort of their idols. They knew where the next meal was coming from. But but compared to the wilderness life that, that they had with Moses, Egypt was more comfortable and less scary because they knew how to survive in that environment. How many people do you know who are stuck in a bad relationship or a bad situation in life and refuse to leave it because the threat of a new future is so unknown that it scares them that they stay where they are? So what does God do? When we cling to the past or our earthly idols, he disciplines us. The Bible said God always disciplines those whom he loves. And the way in which he disciplines us is that he weans us from them by allowing us to enter a wilderness experience where he strips away all those false props of faith by showing us for what they really are, lifeless and empty idols. Until at last, we learn to lean on God and him alone in all times and situations. Brothers and sisters in Christ, know this. New futures are always uncomfortable and scary because they represent a great unknown and a lot of uncertainty. But the problem is that you cannot take the old past and put it into the new wineskins of the future that God wants to make for us. No matter how comfortable or glorious the old days may have been for us, for God to often do a new things in our lives as his people and as a church, he sometimes has to shatter the old things so that we can freely and fully embrace the new future and the realities that face us. Jesus said it quite clearly this way. When he said, he, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back, is fit for service in the kingdom of God. And so it's through this weaning process that you and I begin to grow up into him, who is the head of our faith, Jesus Christ. And we will cease from being mere sheep who are utterly dependent upon other realities for our spiritual well-being becoming his shepherds united together in Christ with an adult-like faith who find our strength and our sufficiency in God alone and who are in turn will be empowered by God to serve his world.
as you celebrate today. In the rest of this year, your 50 years of faithful service and commemorate all that you have managed to accomplish in this place, this city, and in the church of Christ at large, as you should. Remember this. This hallowed anniversary is not just a memorial service about what had been, but it's also a celebration about what God is doing now and what he's promising to do in the future in and through you. Like with Israel, your new and God-filled future will certainly look different than what it was. And how it unfold is still the great unknown. But as you remain united in your vision to serve your Lord and to obey him, you will find that his glorious purposes will be fulfilled in and through you. Amen.